Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Um, now it's good to see you. Uh, I'm glad to be here uh, with you. As you all know, it's been chaotic to know who's going to be here, who's going to be sick, who's going to be in quarantine, so it's good to worship with you uh, today. Uh, we're going to jump right into it. We are in the the book of Romans, jumping into the second chapter. So I'll read that and then we'll uh, jump into it. So <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be Revealed. Verse six, we will render to each one according, or he will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human uh, being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, 11, for God shows no partiality. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Uh, so Paul's been walking us down a, a path. You can kind of hear it even in the text. We, we, we've called this the bad news, right? There, there's no secret. The last couple messages have been really heavy. And until we get to chapter 3, verse 20, uh, they're going to kind of continue to be that way because he's showing us uh, really what sin does in humanity, a.k.a. The, the bad news, how it affects you and, and me and us, and how it comes about first by us suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And then that suppression of the truth begins to not only just leave itself in our head, it, it goes into what we do and changes us kind of from the inside out as God begins to give us to the things that we worship. This is a form of God's wrath. You want that? Okay, go ahead and have that. And as we do this, when we begin to worship those types of things, the text last week said, uh, our heart changes. Our hearts literally become harder. Uh, they, they become darkened, and we do what Paul calls making the exchange. We uh, exchange the worship of the immortal God, of the Father, for created things, for temporary things, for anything around us that is not him. And this exchange leads to kind of these worse and worse and worse pursuits to try and find meaning and joy and satisfaction in life that, that only come from the creator. At the end of chapter one, Paul lays out that this path leads somewhere. It's not just a suppression of the truth that that changes your heart and filters into some things. It actually leads to all manner of unrighteousness, he said, to evil, to malice, to envy, to faithlessness. Uh, He said this whole category, uh, it, it creates people who just like they invent evil to do, ruthlessness and foolishness and quite a bit more, he says it leads to. 
Now, to properly grasp the, 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 the shift that Paul makes and who he's going to begin to speak to in chapter 2, we need to imagine this. Imagine as he listed out those traits that we, we just talked about, deceit and heartlessness and, and all of those. Imagine a person is sitting back and he's hearing one after another after another trait that other people will kind of live in because of their, their suppression of the truth. Imagine somebody hears those and each time they hear one, they yell out, get them, Paul. Right? And then he says another one, like foolishness. Yeah, Paul, let him have it, Paul. And, and then he says another one, you're right, Paul. Let, let, he's, he's almost getting joy uh, out of Paul calling out these other people. Right? The person hearing would, would associate all of those things w- with sins that other people do and things that other people do and things that, that bad guys do and other guys do. And they, they almost get a pride out of Paul calling them out. Yeah, they're the problem with the world. Tell them, Paul, let them have it, Paul. And this group, is the group that Paul's gonna start talking to in chapter two. Largely chapter one was written to the, the, the pagan Gentile world. So people who just openly rejected God, like, yeah, we're totally not Christian, right? We don't, we don't accept any of that, we don't do any of that. Like, this is who chapter one was written to. Now in chapter two, he's writing to the Jewish leaders, we can think of it as to church-going folk. To ones who go like, yeah, I know Jesus, I'm saved, who, who claim some sort of r- religion. So these people who are religious by nature, church-going folk, they would have heard the critique of godlessness that Paul gave in chapter 1 to the pagan world, and they would have eaten it up. Like they would have loved it. They would have felt like it was their, their moment to, to shine as he's talking about this wrath and condemnation that they think is going to happen to other people. And they would get so kind of excited about that because they assume that the, the, the condemnation that Paul is talking about, that they are exempt from that because they're law-following Jewish people. Right, because they're the good guys, because they go to church, because they, they do something that, that is religious in their life. They're like, oh, that's just for those guys. They're like, that, that's not for... For me, oh, I go to church, or I tithe, or I pray, or I curse less than some people, or I vote this way, or I uh, don't drink as much as that person. You know, there's religious markers that they would have, so they're like, no, this condemnation's not for me, it's for for them. Tim Keller says this, and this is exactly how religious people would listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32 today. They would say, well, yes, of course, God's wrath lies on the immoral, the pagan, the one who lives a life of debauchery, but we have the word of God, uh, and, and we live by that. So we are not con- condemned. Uh, we are uh, seen as ones who are, are, are religious, and, and, and we're not condemned because of that. And if you hear this text in light of that, in light of, well, we don't do that, it's only those people, then you're missing the entire point of chapter one. The twist here that Paul presents is... Uh, as the religious person kind of stands back and judges what, what other people do, judging the non-religious person uh, for their blatantly and outwardly visible sin, Paul says in instance to them, what are you standing back agreeing for? You do the exact same thing as they do. You're just a lot better at hiding it with religious churchy Jesus stuff. You're better at covering up. They just don't care about covering it up. Or you, you may not cover it up. You just justify it. You, you highlight your religious deeds, and you're like, well, I did kind of do that, but I did this. So it kind of cancels each other out, like, right? It, Paul's calling them out, right? This is hypocrisy. You, you cannot want to crush other people for doing the same thing that you are doing. We have to be super careful about this text and not run from it. Because if in chapter one, we hear those things and we did that, of like, oh, that's for other people. And then in chapter two, we go, well, that's also, that's, like, that's talking about my grandma's church. 
or, or stuffy religious people or other people who quote unquote aren't doing Christianity right. I, I hope you understand if we do both of those things and we think in chapter one and chapter two, we could be none of those people. This text is actually aimed right at us. Because if you think you're above the fray, that's the problem. Here's what Paul wants to teach us in chapter one and two. A person can be just as lost in unrighteousness as they can in self-righteousness. Does that make sense? You can be just as lost in your sin as lost in your religious patterns that make you think that you're above the fray. The self-righteous person, the religious person actually may be in a worse spot than the religious person. Why? Well, the religious or the unreligious person, the person who, who, who uh, is the pagan in this culture, they know they're not good with God. The religious guy goes to church, thinks he's fine because of a couple things that he does. So you're actually, you're the deceived one in this story. The religious person seems to think that doing a couple Jesus-y things makes him good to go, that all is well. Even more so if we're trying to peek into what Paul's saying, the, the religious person goes, well, I do all these other things, so I'm not, I'm not really that worried about what, what's happening in my heart anymore. I'm not, I'm not worried about heart-level things anymore. Why? Because, well, I've got my, my ticket stamped to heaven. I'm good, right? And the proof of that stamping is church attendance or some other outward marker that, that, I, that, that I do. I, I'm, I'm good to go, so I don't have to worry about the deep, dark corners of the heart. Notice the rhythm in, in the text. Back in... Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this, you have no excuse, O man. O man would have been a a common uh, way to regard a a Jewish religious person back then. We did the you have no excuse thing in chapter 1, too, if you remember. He says, hey, you have no excuse for suppressing the truth. Why? Because God revealed himself even in creation. So you can't go, I didn't know there was a God. He's saying, well, you have no excuse. In chapter 2, he says, you also have no excuse if you are religious, saying you can't claim ignorance either. You have no excuse for your judging other people while you do the same things. Watch his line of reasoning. Because you judge other people while you do the same thing yourself, The mere fact that you judge them for doing things shows that you have a clear awareness that some things are wrong to do, but then you indict yourself because you're doing the same ones. He's going, you're literally using the the rope to get you. It shows that you have the gauge, but you just clearly don't pay attention to it. Now, some hear this text about judging, and what they do is they kind of throw their their hands in the air. Well, I don't want to be a guy who judges other people for doing the same thing as I do. So in essence, I'm just going to live my Christian life this way. Just keep your head down. Don't call anything wrong. Don't call anyone out because that would be judging. Uh, And we don't want to judge others because we could get in trouble ourselves. Some people will, will kind of look to that. So to protect ourselves, we'll just look the other way and nothing can be bad. Paul's not advocating for that here in the text. A kind of paralyzed culture who's like, well, I'm too afraid to say anything's wrong because maybe that'll turn back on me. Paul is talking about the human heart that highlights other people's sin quickly and is quicker and harsher to condemn other people while simultaneously ignoring the, the fact that you do the same thing at a heart level. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying don't call anything wrong. He's saying don't be a hypocrite. We find excuses all the time for our own sin while we crush other people. Right, what are some excuses for our sin? I was tired, didn't get much sleep last night. Like, that's why I was a jerk. That's why I treated you terribly. Sorry, I'll sleep better, maybe tomorrow. Well, I was provoked. What I did was really wrong, but you were a jerk first. So it wasn't that bad. Or well, my, my sin's like a lesser evil. It wasn't really that big 
of a deal. It's kind of a harmless thing. It was just a white lie. Like I kind of like didn't tell the truth there because I didn't want to start an issue and I was like afraid of, of turmoil. So like, yeah, I lied, but like it didn't really hurt anything that I, I lied. It was actually probably a good thing that I lied because it, it, it avoided conflict. See, we tend to do weird things with our sins or we hide sin on our re- religiosity, some, some veiled religious language. I didn't really gossip about that person. I uh, just was asking for counsel from 10 people because I didn't know how to deal with the situation. So I wasn't gossiping. I was actually trying to be wise. Okay, you hid gossip in Jesus' language. While we quickly notice and call out and criticize other people for doing the exact same thing. Paul says this habit of lessening your weakness while highlighting other people is bringing condemnation onto your head. John Stott says, we work ourselves into a state of self-righteous indignation over disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems to not nearly be so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. You realize this, right? Our hearts are really sneaky and good at this, at justification, at twisting words to make it seem like we're not as bad. What does this look like? Well, that person was boasting, which is rude, I was sharing exciting news. Really? Well, that person covets a lot. I just have desire, ambition, and goals and want stuff. That person slanders people all the time. Well, I, I needed to share pertinent information so they would be in the know. Well, that person gossips. Well, I wanted to share a prayer request. That person is, is an adulterer. I look at images that I probably shouldn't sometimes. That person sows strife. I haven't quite become ready to apologize for that thing that I did that I know was wrong. That person is so hateful. I haven't come to a healthy point to where I can forgive them yet. Hiding things in religious language. You pull all that off and it's still sin. We have an incredible capacity to villainize other people's actions while we downgrade, justify, or ignore our own. Mine was actually not the same. Paul is warning us about this habit here, saying, hey, you're going to bring condemnation on yourself. Why? Verse 2 says well, the reason why, because God judges rightly. The statement is multifaceted. Our judgment is not right. God's is. The, the, the people who, who, who end up uh, calling other people out for the thing that they do the same thing, that's just bad judgment. That's not being a fair judge. But the one who is just, God the Father, will never do this, he's saying. There are court cases right now that we seem to see on the regular where, where, where the end of the court case comes and we shake our heads and there's this thing inside of us goes that justice wasn't served there, right? Maybe somebody didn't get punished for something they clearly should have or someone did get punished under a mob rule of something that like it actually wasn't that wrong. We see all of these cases where we're going like justice wasn't served there. They just got off on a loophole. Well, Paul's saying eternity will not be like that. No slick talking person, no loophole will get anyone into a situation where they'll get out of what is just and good. No evidence will be missed out. No detail will be unseen. No court precedents will give someone a loophole to get out. All judgments will be 100% fair. And Paul's reminding us of this. Why are you judging them unfairly when you do the same thing? God will not judge things like that. Francis Schaeffer talked a little bit about this, and he calls it the principle of the tape recorder, which makes us feel old. Well, me, old. Some of you are my age. 
He says, it's as though unseen, there'll be a recorder around each of our necks, and it records the things that we say to others and about others. And it records the things that we say other people really ought to do. And then in the end, God, the judge, will take that recorder off of our neck, and he'll say, hey, I'm going to judge you entirely fairly. I'm going to simply, I'm going to play the tape, you and me, I'm going to play the tape, and as I play the tape, I'm going to judge you on the basis and the standard that you judge other people by. I'm going to use the same standard as you did. The same critical attitude you did, I'm going to use that. The attitude you had towards other people, the way you want to condemn other people, I'm going to use that for you. Let's play the tape. The evidence will be before us. And, and let, let's see what you said. Francis Schaeffer says, Who, who's going to escape judgment if this is the case? And the answer is no person in good conscience could say, I do really good with that test. This again proves the thesis statement in chapter one for us. The gospel is the power of God for the Jew and the Greek, meaning for the person who is lost and the religious person who says things behind other people's back when they do the same thing, both people need the gospel. It's for the bad person who knows they need saving and the person who thinks they're a good religious person and doesn't really need to be saved for much because they aren't that bad. For those of you with a sensitive conscience, this text is not trying to steal your assurance of salvation. It isn't trying to take from you the ability to know that you're saved already. It's trying to make sure that you don't confuse uh, being religious, being your version of moral, being a conservative, being against bad things with the same thing as genuinely following King Jesus. Those aren't the same. Do not confuse a couple of things that you place over your life with being saved by the work of Christ. Do not consider it the same as being sanctified, being transformed, or being new. You can put some religious habits in your life, and that is not the same thing as being born again and given a new heart in Jesus. J.D. Greer talks about it this way, religion cannot be the thin veneer that is placed over a heart that's just as sinful as everyone else's. Do you catch that? That veneer, that outward, like that, that small layer that makes it look different, but on inside, it's the same as everything else. We cannot be Christians who are just as prideful, angry, lusting, mean, and terrible, and critical in the world, but think that our religious facade will make that all better. Jesus did not die to give you a facade of decency. He died to make you new. We have to understand that, to transform you, to make you brand new, to make you submit and give you a better life and a better heart and a better path than you were on. A couple religious habits did not equal this. Paul, again, this may seem hard or heavy. He's trying to save us from our religious habits. Paul then asked the rhetorical question to the religious people living this way. He says, do you really think that God the judge uh, will, will judge others for doing the same things as you are? and let you slide for it? Like, do you really think that's going to happen? Do you believe that because of your resume or saying that you are Christian, that God is going to give you a free pass for the same thing that you demand he condemn other people for? He's going to smash them and give you an attaboy. No. Some would begin to believe, well, maybe since God hasn't stopped you from continuing in a sin, that he's kind of grown accustomed to it and okay. That's the hard part for religious people. Over a period of time, you think, well, God doesn't stop me. So maybe he's okay. And we can end up taking his patience as approval. He's fine with it. And Paul says here in this text, don't you know that God's 
patience is meant to lead you to repentance. The fact that he didn't crush you is not meant to give you a green light to go, it's fine. His patience is meant to lead you to a repenting heart. His kindness is not approval. You see that habit in your heart, right? I see it in mine. He's fine with it. If you ask, okay, well, what does that look like in real life for someone to, to kind of think that God has given them approval? Well, I, I've had conversations with people who will literally tell me when we talk about sin issues, I just don't feel guilty anymore about that thing. I, I don't feel guilty anymore. And because I don't feel guilty anymore over that sin, I think God's okay with it. I think not feeling bad is a sign that God is actually okay and championing it, in fact. What is this? This is the presuming that he's talking about in verse four. It's looking for loopholes. We love loopholes. Well, my situation's different. I like, I, these things happen. It kind of changes the way that this goes for me. And so like, that's why the, my thing's not exactly the same. as If you ever think you're above the fray in that way, something's gone wrong in the heart. There are no loopholes. What would this look like in our lives? Did you used to feel bad when you got drunk and now you don't? Did you used to feel bad when you went off on your kids and now you don't? Did you used to feel bad when you're a jerk to someone out in, in your neighborhood or at your work or some other place? Did you used to feel bad when you neglected church and MC, but now you don't? Did you used to feel bad when you knew that you were selfish with your money, but now you're like, no, it's fine? Now it just doesn't seem like nearly as big of a deal. What our hearts need to understand is all of our hearts will try and do this. Us not feeling guilty was never meant to be permission. It's room to repent. So why Paul says, do not presume and do not assume that you're fine. Confess and repent. Again, repentance is turning back to Jesus for life. It's not meant to hurt you. Then verse five gives us one of the scariest verses in the Bible to think through. He says, if you're judging others while giving yourself a free pass for the same types of things, if you're continuing to do your acceptable sins on the regular while you call out and chastise other people for doing the same type of thing, because of your hard heart and your impenitent heart, it says you're storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of judgment, it'll be revealed. The heart that says, I will not repent and I will not turn, and I'm going to keep doing this. Paul's trying to say that the heart's not actually saved, is what he's saying here. The language here for storing up is a banking metaphor. Same way that we save money, right? You take a little bit from each paycheck and you, you put it in a 401k or you put it in savings or something else like that. You just kind of keep investing and you deposit over and over and over. And what you're doing is building up a treasure for yourself. And on a rainy day or someday in the future, you can have access to this much bigger thing that's the exact type of language that Paul uses. This is the way sin is. You keep depositing it in the account. Here's the devastating part for us. We deposit it and think it's gone. And Paul says it's never gone. We are adding up charges and indictments and wrath for ourselves, storing them up, building up a pile that we're going to see again in the future. Nothing will get lost. All will be accounted for. Here's the thing that kind of messed with me this week. Just because I forgot a sin doesn't mean God did. I'm really good at forgetting. Just me. Again, this is not trying to steal your salvation away from you. 
It's trying to help you understand if you're playing games with justifying the things that you do, that something may actually be really wrong in the heart. If you've grown comfortable with sin patterns in your life over time, with not being present, with being angry, with, with um, too much alcohol, with envy, with boasting, with, with, with all of these different things, it doesn't matter what it is. If you've grown accustomed to that sin or even begin to forget that you're doing it, it doesn't mean that God will do the same. No sin will be forgotten and all things are a big deal. Sins matter, church. Here's what you and I need to hear. Sins matter even if you're saved. If you're beginning to think, well, this is heavy. I didn't sign up for this today. Yeah, last week was too. Next week will be also. Paul is trying to show us that our lives and the way that we live them matters. Like that's the core here. It's easy to believe. Again, this is towards religious people who think they're fine and everything's good. And like, I prayed a prayer one day, so it's all good. It's easy to believe I'm a Christian already, so my eternity is secure. So from here on out, what I do, it doesn't really matter. Sure, most people wouldn't be so brazen as to say it. They just live like that. Paul wants us to understand this is a heresy. It's a lie the enemy wants to deceive you with. Your life matters. You weren't meant to sit back and think nothing that you do and nothing that you work towards and and nothing that your life exhibits matters. Our unrepentant sins, they'll show up again before God. And our good works or our lack thereof will show up before God as well. Verse 6 speaks of this. Again, he's trying to show you your life matters, where you're the, the person who's not actually saved but hides behind a couple of religious things or the person who, who's doing or not doing good works. He's saying all of those things actually still matter. In verse 6, he says, God will render to each one according to his deeds. Uh, God will not render to me for your deeds, and it won't, it won't vice versa either. Okay, here's the question, right? Did our theology just change? No. He's trying to teach us here. Our justification is by faith alone. Your deeds do not matter to save you. Faith is what saves a person. That's secured 100% by Jesus. Our theology isn't, we're not changing to a works theology. You only get saved through faith. Paul's teaching us something that I think we've avoided for a while. But the rewards in heaven will be distributed according to your works. You see the difference there? There is how you get saved, and then rewards that you get upon salvation for what you've done. What does this mean? Heaven is not like a kid's t-ball league that everyone gets the same trophy no matter what they did. No matter how many games they won or lost, that's not what the picture actually looks like. You're thinking, well, where, where does this show up in the Bible? Jesus told his followers and the disciples who were justified by faith already. They were saved already. He told them, go begin to store up treasure for yourself in heaven in Matthew 6 and in Luke 12. They're already saved. He's not saying store up treasure so you can actually save yourself. He's saying you're saved. Now go store up treasure and reward for yourself. Plan and and sow in the same way that you sow into a 401k or you and I do. He's saying sow in eternally to your reward that you're going to get there. Again, Jesus is the only thing that saves but what you do matters, whether it's sin or good. And there will be a, a point that we're going to have to look at those things. Verse 7 says, Those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, 
Is it saying by patience, they're looking for honor in eternity. Those who have set their hearts towards heaven and seek honor in heaven, seek to follow Jesus, to lay themselves down, to do good, to be patient, to be the light of the world, to endure persecution, to not grow content in their sanctification or their discipleship. Those people will be rewarded for their good deeds in heaven. Those people know Jesus and are following him. The good that they're doing will not be lost on the Father when eternity comes. Here, here's the way, and I, I even talked to Allie a little bit about this, and I, we, we don't talk about this very much because I think in a hyper-grace culture, we stay away from it. Well, grace saves, everything's even. Grace saves and gets you into heaven. Understand that the apostle Paul and the man who was crucified next to Jesus' heaven will look different. Right? So there's a story, Jesus, there was three crosses when Jesus was, was crucified, and there's two people beside him, and one of the guys on the cross, he's about to die, he confesses faith, and Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. He gets saved literally in the last breaths of his life, and it is good and it is true that that man, he ends up going to heaven. He's redeemed to live with Jesus again. It would be foolish to believe that his reward will look the exact same as the apostle Paul, who over and over and over and over and over sowed again all the, point, all the way to death. Does that make sense what I'm saying here? Your, your faith is what saves you, not your good works, but your good works matter. So the people who sow for eternity, their good works will be seen, but others that don't have their hearts set on eternity, they're sowing into the now. Right? What is it? When, he's, when he talks about this, they're self-seeking here on earth. It means I'm just, I'm just trying to build like goodness and things for me here. They're not really building for in the future or for in heaven. It says their self-seeking will distract them so much to the point that they will not have room to obey truth. And they're gonna start living in a form of unrighteousness because they're not sowing into eternity. It says they will get wrath and fury in the end of their lives. There will be tribulation and distress. Again, this is not saying that if you're a Christian, you're going to get wrath and fury. You are outside of the wrath of God. But he's saying a lot of people's religious habits make them think that they're saved and they're not. And and it's going to show at some point. He talks about to the Jew first and the Greek, meaning good works uh, will be rewarded to the Jew first and the Greek. He's saying, hey, it doesn't matter where you come from. What, what you do good will be looked at, and it doesn't matter where you come from, what you do bad will be looked at by God because he doesn't show any partiality. Again, Paul was speaking to a group of people whose faith rested in their proclamation. They were believers in word. You ask them, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, totally. But they're living um, not like believers indeed. They called themselves believers because they had a heritage as Jewish people. They called themselves believers because they weren't Greek. They, they called themselves believers because there was a certain set of things that they were against and they really didn't like. They called themselves believers because they came to the temple every once in a while, because they followed some rituals around them and some traditions, yet despite all of their religious activities and words, their heart were, was not transformed. They were not changed. Here, if there's like one sentence we can take away from this, their lives looked religious, but their hearts looked like everyone else's. Paul's warning of this. This is not a matter of 
be better, do better. It's, hey, be, be careful what's happening in the heart. If you do a couple religious routines, but there's never any transformation or change in your heart, there's a warning sign that something is wrong. Jesus wants access to your heart to begin to change it. Since your heart has never been made new, if you're just doing religious activities, but he's never changed your heart, you've never been born again. And Jesus says the only way to heaven is to be born again. These people that Paul is speaking to, they had a layer of religion about them, but their heart was still in sin. Religion filtered into some of their things, but faith didn't filter into their worldview, how they saw the world and how they acted in the world. And it also didn't sow into how they treated eternity and what they devoted themselves to. And they mainly just lived for themselves. Lives that were called Christian, but looked really secular. Lives that didn't sow into eternity, they relied on religion to get them everything that they needed. What's the tell of all this? The giveaway, because here's the wise thing. We, we said it in the text the last two weeks. If these texts only make you think of other people and never yourself, there's a huge problem. So a question should be like, how do I know? Some of you have guilty conscience and you say anything, you're like, that's so mean. You're like, no, you didn't do that, settle down. And others, we talk about something, you're like, I've never done that. Like, I saw you do that yesterday. We need to see ourselves clearly and ask, how do I know if I'm doing some of this? Well, the giveaway that he points out to that, that religion may be your marker rather than actual salvation is you harshly condemn everyone. You think that other people are the problem. You believe that you're never as bad as other groups of people. Your, your group of people that are the worst might change. But you... end up having a faith that's only skin deep because it touches some of your habits, but it doesn't really touch your heart at the core. Here's the question. Is your faith doing anything at a heart level? That's like, that's like the best way to understand what Paul's talking about here. If the answer is like, no, man, there's just nothing going on in there. He's going, hey, be really careful then. The text serves as a warning to us. Be careful how you live. Make sure that you're not assuming that you're good with God because you do a couple Jesus-y things or you're not as bad as other people. If God isn't working in your heart, if he isn't reforming you, be careful not to assume that you're a believer just because your words would confess to other people that you're a believer. Make sure that your heart and your deeds show Christ's heart. Again, if you're wondering, okay, well, how, how do I tell? How, how do I know if I'm on the right path? What are some markers to know if I'm just hyper-religious or if I'm just trying to figure it out as an imperfect person? Well, the first marker is compassion. Those who have been forgiven much, who know the darkness in their own heart that Christ has pulled them out of, who knew that they deserved wrath but have been given mercy, they will tend to show, want to show mercy to more people. Does it mean that you don't get mad? No, I think we all kind of get mad sometimes. But the religious heart down deep wants God to get those people. Get them, God. Let, let them have it. Get the bad people. Let them get theirs. While the heart that is Christ, that, that has been transformed, that heart wants to see the bad people get radically saved just like you got saved. Christ's heart for the lost becomes your heart when you're his. Religion won't do that. Religion will tend to make you just condemn, judge, and criticize a whole lot more. First marker is just, how mean are you towards people? The second is a clear view of what you struggle with. The religious person who isn't saved but probably thinks that they are, they're kind of blind to their sin, at least functionally. They've kind of accepted their own sin as no big deal. They found a loophole that just kind of really works for them. I'm married in my heart. It doesn't matter. You know, some sort of thing like that. 
while they seem to be able to see other sins really clearly, if you are keenly aware of everyone's fault but yours, it's a warning sign that something a warning sign that something's really wrong in your heart. We don't have to beat ourselves and always have a fresh struggle every single day. But over certain seasons of time, there's going to be things that you and I struggle with. If you don't see any of those, that's a problem. A clear view of where you struggle and where you still need the gospel is a tell if you are Jesus's or not. And how can you see this pattern work itself out? Because again, you're like, well, I know I do bad things. Well, it works itself out in patterns of confession and repentance. Do you confess to other believers, brothers and sisters, man, here's where I'm struggling right now. This thing's really messing with my heart right now and I can't get out from underneath it. Will you pray for me about it? I need to repent from this issue. A Christian heart confesses when they mess up, a religious heart justifies it. A Christian heart will show their weakness, a religious heart will hide it. A Christian heart deals with their weakness, a religious heart will just begin to accept it as not as bad as what other people do. Again, what does this repenting look like? It, it just looks like dealing with your weakness and trying to run from it and back to Jesus. The religious heart holds on to their sin after first minimizing it. They thank God, man, God, thank you, I'm not as bad as that guy. While having no fire in their belly to actually be sanctified or look more like Jesus. But at least they identify as a believer, right? Lost in self-righteousness. Right? First marker is compassion. The second is do you have a keen awareness of who you are and what's happening in your heart? The, the third way that Paul's mentioning here in the text is good works. Here, here's how we differentiate this. Are you meant to come to church? Yes. That's not a good work. It's a given if you're a Christian. Right? We, like that's, that, it's weird that that's even awkward to say in our moment and culture. So like, He's trying to show you that like going to church and being a decent human being aren't a good work. That's just what happens if you're in Jesus. Other things are the good works. For religious people, they do good works now to feel better about themselves. I do this to insulate the way I feel better than those people. Religious people tend to do good works in order to justify being able to keep a hold of a sin too. They do good works for the here and the now, but they're not really that interested in following Jesus in the here and now. It's just kind of a bartering agreement that kind of happens. Well, the person who's following Jesus and being transformed, they're interested in good works when no one's watching. Good works that don't justify their sin. Good works that there's no applause for and there's no clapping for and, and good works that are manifest in the way that Jesus is transforming them day in and, and day out and compassion and the fruit of the spirit that come out of the life that they live. They don't care who sees their good works. They just want to live more like Jesus and it changes what they do. Again, these markers of compassion, of knowing yourself and of good works, they don't come from us alone. This is Paul's message also in this book. We have to be made new to do this, which means that you can't work hard enough to, to, to not be critical anymore. You can't work hard enough to, to make yourself more aware to confess and repent. You can't work hard enough to do the good works that are listed here. The only way that gets us there is the path of the cross is to turn to Jesus and say, man, I need your help. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Would you save me? Would you re redeem me? I can't do any of this on my own. Will you make me new? Because my heart won't do this without you. 
We need to be really careful because you could take this text in a religious way. Well, if I just work harder on all those things, I can do them. The whole point is you can't do them. But the cross can save you, change your heart, and then Jesus can begin to grow them in you. As we kind of wrap up today, the best thing that you and I can do is just have an honest understanding of what's happening in your heart today. Is Jesus anywhere near in working on it? Are are there markers? Are there changing? Are there things that he's asking you to trust him more and not do anymore for your good? Is there kindness towards people that you just kind of don't want to be kind to? These are the markers. What's happening in there? If compassion marks you, if you've been confessing and repenting and you're keenly aware of where you're struggling and and you've been doing good works and you're storing up treasure in heaven, then then here's here's the play for you. Praise God for that. You didn't do that. He did that and that's awesome. It is okay to understand if you're at a good season and he's done a good work in you, it's okay to go, thank you that you've done that. Man, you have worked. I'm keenly aware of where I'm struggling now, but you're working on it with me and like, this is, this is good. It, it's okay to praise him for victories. On the other hand, if your faith has been more in word, in ritual, in habit, in assumption because you're not as bad as some other people, if your religion or your faith is more just kind of a, a surface level thing and it's never actually penetrated into the depths of your heart and you're thinking maybe just being moral or being good or being decent or any of those other things will kind of, will kind of fix you, Maybe you just realized today that you you haven't actually asked God to save you as much as assumed that you are saved because of a couple things that you do or don't do. Here's the play for that. There's a veil of religiosity that's been happening and God is inviting you to accept him, to save you. The, The play for this as well is understanding Christ came for you as well. And there's a need to pray, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. God, will you save me? I can't do this. I don't even know what that stuff looks like completely, but will you save me? I need you. I need to be transformed because I can't do any of that on your own. I don't even want to rely on myself anymore. The invite would be, if you have been religious, walk out and ask for God to save you. Understanding that God wants to save the religious person as bad as he wants to save the renegade. The, the old son and, the, and the, the, the rebellious young son and the prodigal son story fits really well into this. He wants to save both. If you realize you've been more religious than anything else, man, why would you walk away without just asking God to save you? The third category is if you know that Christ has saved you, but, but maybe you've begun to see some troubling things, right? That you've been a little bit too fast and, and loose with some sinful habits, as you understand how bad drinking's got for everyone over COVID, maybe you're like, oh, that's been an issue. I should probably like not do that like that way anymore. Or maybe you realize that that's gotten a little fast and loose for you. Maybe you, you understand some other sinful habits have kind of gotten themselves wedged in, in your heart. Maybe you realize, man, I'm just a little bit more consumed with myself and my own things and just kind of storing up and building a life for me here that my mind's not even on eternity or other people's eternity or anything like that. Maybe, maybe you've built up this criticism towards other people where you're like, man, I'm just harsher towards other people than I, than I should be, but at least I have these habits that I'm doing I think Christ is inviting you to, to confess that and repent of that today. The, religion is creeping into your salvation. That'll happen to me and it'll happen to you at different points. It shouldn't be weird like, oh my gosh, that happened to you. No, that's going to happen. At that point, we confess, Jesus, I need you. I've stopped relying on you. I've stopped asking you to work in my heart. I just kind of do a couple habits and then I'm mad at a whole lot of people. Will you help me? Understand the beauty of that. If you feel this tension, man, I, maybe I've just relied a little bit on a couple things that I've done a little bit too much. That's the Holy Spirit drawing your heart going, hey, 
back home. Come back home. There's a better place for you to be. Let, let Jesus work on you. Let him do his work. Run back to the Father and know that he is good and also remember again that your life matters. Because as people who, who do religious things, what we can tend to do is almost hit autopilot. We're just not paying attention to what we're doing. And Paul's going, hey man, your life matters. Let's pay attention again. Let's give Jesus access again. Life can slip into routines you're not even realizing that your heart is no longer before the Father to work on. The hope is that we would lay down religious veneers if that's the case. Gary, you and John can come back up. Here's the thing. My, my hope is, is clear for you that everyone would respond. If those markers of compassion and knowing your sin and repenting and confessing and good works have been happening, then worship and gratitude today. Man, thank you, Lord, that you've done that. Right, not in pride. You're not puffing up your chest. You didn't do any of that. Just thank you, God, that you've done a good work. If you realize, man, I'm just religious and I, like, I've done a couple things, but I've just never been saved. My hope is that you would just pray. Ask God, will you save me? If you don't know what that looks like or what that means, I'd be happy to do that with you. Just let me know. But there's so much more for you than a couple religious habits. I think God might be trying to call some of us out of that. And if you, all, if you know that you're a believer and your life's just kind of like gotten a little distracted and weird, you're not focused on eternity or any of the other stuff, Jesus doesn't have access to your heart and just become a little bit mean, just repent. It doesn't have to be that horrific of a thing. Jesus said, and I did that one thing again. This is why I need you. Will you help me? Forgive me for those things that I've been doing. Help me to walk back to you and understand the beauty of what you've done because only you will save me. The hope is that none of us would walk out without any type of reaction to this type of text. We'll be able to take communion uh, today during worship. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, anyone whose faith is in Jesus can come and take today. As we take the elements, here's what we're remembering though. The body of Jesus is broken for all the things that you and I haven't done right. There's times when you hear sermons like this and maybe you feel bad and you feel guilt and you feel remorseful for things. As you take the bread, you're remembering he was beaten for that. You don't have to beat yourself. Take the gift. Take and remember that he has fulfilled every good work that you and I have not. And then as you take the drink, what you're remembering is I'm washed clean from that. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're knowing you've done the work on the cross and then you bled so that I don't have to. So I am outside of the wrath and you've already done the good work. Thank you, God, for doing that. That's the hope. You don't have to be a member here to take. We would ask that your faith be in Jesus. But I pray that as we do this today and as we worship, that we'd be just built up. Jesus has, has given a real sacrifice for us. There's real shame that is dealt with in what he has done. There's mercy available as we take. We, you remember that. Stand and pray with me. God.